Hey everyone, John here at the top of the episode, uh, wanting to give you a little warning. Uh, we edited this episode differently than previous episodes, and we do not own the rights to any of the music that you hear. Enjoy the show. With music chapter movies told in some fucked up shit, a non-linear as a character, and some fashion happens. Today's movies, Pulp Fiction versus Bad Times at the El Royale. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Movie Deja Vu, a podcast that answers the question, didn't I see this somewhere? From two movie aficionados. I'm Father Zeb, a fictional priest who cannot remember his Bible verses correctly, otherwise known as John, and with me is my co-host and lounge singer, Shady. I said goddamn! (laughs) Say it again. I said goddamn! That was good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad neither of us was a cult leader. I am not a cult leader, you are correct. Uh, Shady, how are you today? Um, I'm, I'm tired, but I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm ducky. (laughs) So I, before we get into it, I initially, um, brought this idea to Shady to do Bad Times at the El Royale versus Quentin Tarantino's filmography. And Shady's like, I am not watching 27 million movies. (laughs) And I went, fair. It's a lot of movies. But we are, like, as a forewarning, we're going to be pulling references from a lot of Tarantino movies that are not necessarily Pulp Fiction. Yes, because we- I feel like Pulp Fiction, though his second movie? Um, technically his third movie as director, but his first movie got all chopped up and not, it's like unofficially released and stuff like that. So people don't really count it. Was Reservoir Dogs after this one? Reservoir Dogs was the first one that most people will recognize as a Tarantino movie. And, and then, then this one came this out This would after be that. the second one, but he did technically have um, an independent film um, before both of those that he cut down to like 37 minutes. Oh. And then I don't think it was ever officially released, but like you can find it on YouTube or something. Um, let me find the name of it real quick because that would be helpful for people. My Best Friend's Birthday. My Best Friend's Birthday. Yes. The film was originally 70 minutes long, but was re-edited to run just over 36 minutes due to a fire in the warehouse where the originals were kept. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But this is the uh, Pulp Fiction. Is we'll the say one... this is the one that put him on the map. And this is the one where his thumbprint as a director is created. Yeah, this is, uh, y- yeah, he, he, he really, ind- I'm going to say indulgent, which sounds like a criticism. It's not, it's a positive thing in this case, but it's very indulgent. Yeah. Like just in his particular interests. So Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. Obviously it's written by Quentin Tarantino. Stories by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and directed by Quentin Tarantino. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 91% fresh rating. And on Metacritic, it's got a 94 out of 100. 
Yeah, that's from 24 reviews, 23 of them were positive. One of them was mixed. There were no negative reviews. And just in the interest of getting this information out there, I did count 17 of those reviews were perfect 100s. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What was the mixed one? Uh, 60. So that's still above average. That's still pretty good. I'm yeah. though, I'm surprised that they're not both like 95 or higher. Mm-hmm. Both scores. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Boyhood was 100. I'm surprised that this movie wasn't 99, considering. Mm. No, I feel like 94. They're, mm-hmm. uh, don't get me wrong. They're, yeah. they're great scores. Right. But rewatching this movie, I was like, it's only 91 and 94. It's not <laughs> higher. Like, um, I would put it at like at 96, 97. Yeah, I, I can see how uh, you, you knock a few points just for... Uh... Oh, racism? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I mean, that part's not good, but you can also, you know, these also aren't good characters. No. So it's not like they're asking you to agree with the racism. No. Um, acor- go ahead. According to IMDb, the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster, and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. Is it really only four tales? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, it's the diner, it's the Jules and um, Vincent. Because Jules, Jules and Vincent have come back later. That's why I'm, like, right. confused. Yeah. Oh, we can go into, like, the, the, the whole development oh. of these stories later. Well, hold on. I got to introduce okay. Bad Times first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying later. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Bad Times at the El Royale came out in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Only two years ago, guys. Woohoo! <laughs> um, it's written and directed by Drew Goddard. I had to look him up because I knew the name. Mm-hmm. Do you, you, know, yeah. you know who he is. Yeah, Daredevil. Daredevil? He Frank was a Cabin writer. In the woods. He was a writer for... Buffy and Angel, which is yeah. how he met Joss Whedon to do Cabin in the Woods. Um, and, and I'm like, oh, it all makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> However, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 74% fresh rating, which suck at Rotten Tomatoes, and <laughs> a Metacritic of 68 out of 100. Um, and that is from 23 positive reviews, 16 mixed reviews, and 4 negative reviews. <gasps> 43 total. How dare they? <laughs> I mean, I like this movie a lot, but I think that's a pretty fair score. How dare you, Shane? <laughs> I do like it a lot. According to IMDb, and this is how it's written, guys. I'm not... I know I'm, I, I know, <laughs> I know. I have, like, sharp inhales and all that, but seriously, this is how IMDb wrote it. <laughs> Early 1970s. Four strangers check in at the El Royale Hotel. The hotel is deserted, staffed by a single desk clerk. Some of the new guests' reasons for being there are less than innocent, and some are not who they appear to be. <laughs> I'm like, guys, you could have been a little more poetic with this. <laughs> yeah, it's um, very dry. It's accurate. Yes. It's accurate. just... Although I know. have questions about the first sentence, quote-unquote well, sentence. Yeah. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> So shady. 
Yeah. I just want to get this right off, right off my chest, right okay. out, out of the way as soon as possible. These movies are not the same at all. <laughs> I, I, not not story story wise. No. no. Uh, we uh, clearly we're doing as I said earlier. I wanted to do the Quentin Tarantino filmography because Bad Times has nothing to do with Quentin Tarantino, or I should say Quentin Tarantino had nothing to do with creating this film, mm-hmm. but it is clearly his mark. It, it's this whole, it's so interesting, this recursive uh, influence thing happening because Tarantino, great singular director, famous for a good reason, lauded for a good reason. He's very skilled at what he does. He's not actually very original. Everything he does is pulled from a different source. And he's very honest about what those sources are. He doesn't, you know, pretend like he has an original thought in his head. What's original about him is the way he sorts it all together. But everything is so heavily referenced in his work. Um, But now, because he's been working for so long, that now we have young filmmakers coming up who grew up watching Quentin Tarantino movies and being inspired directly by him. So now his works are getting referenced in other movies and stuff. And it's uh, just always interesting to see how that turns out. I do remember like a lot of really annoying people I took um, film studies courses with in college being mad at Lady Gaga for the um, telephone video because it directly references several Tarantino movies and everybody's saying how she's such a rip-off artist for that and everything and just being like, guys, Tarantino (laughs) has always done the same thing. I'm pretty sure he actually, like, gave approval to that Lady Gaga video. You can calm down. She's not ripping him off. She's paying homage to the same way to him, the same way that he pays homage to the things that he His sources. Right. (laughs) I don't know if it was done on purpose i don't think bad times when the drew goddard went into it saying you know quentin tarantino that's what we're doing i think yeah the with his with the non-linear storytelling at least that tarantino is known for right all of his works right but he didn't invent that he didn't invent that no right and it's you can use it in other things i feel like though with bad times, it's more concise. It's like it's like bad times. You're reading a a book that's written in third person, and then with like Pulp Fiction and other Quentin Tarantino movies, it starts in the middle, and then you have to bounce it around. Am I making sense? <laughs> <laughs> no, you are. I, like, I hope it, I'm it, Englishing. <laughs> I do think like it's an important distinction that. Yes, Bad Times begin starts at the beginning and there are flashback scenes, but they're right. flashbacks. In Pulp Fiction and other Tarantino works, you have scenes that are out of chronological order, but just because a scene happened before one that you'd already seen, that actually doesn't necessarily make it a flashback. No. And, and then Pulp Fiction with- doesn't feature flashbacks at all. There's only one. You're right, there is one. It's a very famous scene, I can't... Yeah. The watch scene. <laughs> yeah, Come on. it's very famous. <laughs> I had this watch up my ass for two years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Rewatching Bad Times, I was just like, oh, clearly it's showing you what's happening at the same time in the different rooms, mm-hmm. but it's switching not perspective. intercut. 
Right. It's switching perspective and it, yeah, it doesn't play with the timeline as much as a Tarantino would. Yeah. Although I feel like, no, you're right. It, Cause it's just it's, like, it's more this is the... Rashomon style where it's just, we know you've already seen this, but now you're seeing it specifically from this character's point of view. Let's, let's backtrack a little bit <laughs> and show you why Darlene, what happened to Darlene after she knocked out Flynn or yeah. while all this is going on, let's explain who Emily is dragging into her room tied up. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's introduce Rose and then, <laughs> and then at the end when the clusterfuck happens. Which that does remind me a lot more of other Tarantino movies, but not Pulp Fiction. I was telling Shady earlier that Bad Times remind me a little more of... Uh, Hateful Eight. Thank you, The Hateful Eight, where it's set in one spot. It's all in that one location. Granted, Pulp Fiction... I feel like it's like a 10 block radius at most. Yeah. If you want to count LA as one location, then yes, it all takes place in LA. But even like further down, it all takes place at least in the same neighborhood. Uh, you have the boxing ring that's, that Marcellus has his hand in. Yeah. Um, and then you have the club where Marcellus does business. And then Mia's house, which I think is also Marcellus's house. Yes. Like, it's their house together? I believe so. Really, Marcellus is, like, the main character of that movie. <laughs> yeah, he is. It, it's, uh, the, the unifying element in Bad Times is the location. The unifying element in Pulp Fiction is Marcellus. Marcellus Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> like, even there are two characters we're introduced to who have no relationship to him, but they still tie very heavily into another character who does have a relationship to him. Oh, so, oh, I want to backtrack for a hot second. Okay. I mean, we mentioned Christopher Walken. Yeah. But that brings me to Butch. <gasps> where yeah. Bruce Willis, lovely Bruce Willis. Oh my God, he's so cute in this movie. Yes. He's so cute. Um, the point I want to bring up, though, is that Butch's storyline is centered around deception. Mm-hmm. And... That's like almost everyone's story in bad times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you think about it. Yeah. I mean. Almost all of them are hiding something about their identity. Yeah. Or their, or their purpose in being there. Yeah. Where I wrote down. I, okay. So I know that these are not their real names. But okay. this, these are their names that you follow for the most part. Yeah. Laramie. Yeah. Flynn. And then I also noted that El Royale is deceiving everyone. <laughs> Yeah. The hotel it itself is. is deceiving everyone. Characters who never even show up, but the, the owners of the place and whoever else helped them build all that stuff. Management. <laughs> and then also, music is a character. And pick a Quentin Tarantino movie. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Music is a character. Like, yeah. you can't fight me on it. That you can at me at if you want um, to. I would only fight you because I'm not a big fan of the term something inanimate being a character, but it is a major driving force. Fine. <laughs> but but like, even that's just a technicality. That's not, I won't argue with you that it is like a huge factor. Yes. And like, you have Darlene played by the 
beautiful and wonderful Cynthia Revo. Oh my God, how uh, is she not in everything by this point? I don't know. I just she's want her voice. Incredible. Oh my God, have you seen the movie Widows? Yes. She's incredible. And she's like, she had no business being as great in that movie as she is. She's a very small part in that movie. I, <laughs> while rewatching this movie, I was just like, can we have Cynthia Erivo in every movie? I sh- she doesn't have to have a big role. She can just be a side character or like yeah. a lounge singer. One yeah. or the other, or both. Yeah. Just stick her on the soundtrack if she can't physically show up. Yeah, put just her, be put like, voice okay, on there. just record any song. Do happy birthday. I don't care. <laughs> We will put your voice singing happy birthday into our movie. This old heart of mine's been broke a thousand times. Each time you break away, I feel gonna stay. Speaking of Darlene, too, yeah. uh, she's like in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes. <laughs> in this movie. Like, she's the, she's the only one whose backstory isn't full of, like, some sort of crime or deception. Right. She's a, a, a clean... Uh, Clean soul. (laughs) Clean soul, yeah. And, you know, not that she's, like, this completely innocent ingenue or anything. She has a little more bite than that. Yes. Especially Um, when she stands up at the end. Oof. Philly Lee. Oof. Snaps, girl. Yes. Snaps. Um, But, but yeah, she's the closest we get to, like, a heroic figure, really. And then I, um... I'm digging at the bottom of the barrel for this one. I was really trying my hardest to be like, what are some similarities? Uh, <laughs> same could be said about Butch and Marcellus going into that pawn shop, thrift store, whatever it yeah. is, where they meet the gimp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you can also say Mia on accident is like wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, she's a, a victim of bad luck. Right, but you know she's also cokehead. Right, right. It's not she's again not really an ingenue or anything like that. But you know she's not killing people. <laughs> right. But she I, also like aligns herself with people who do with little problem. I ju- I also forgot. I thought she was only in that one story. I guess we're calling them <laughs> vignette. Vignette. I, yeah. I I assumed <laughs> that was just her. Yeah. Which. I, I took the time curve, by the way. <laughs> I took the time to measure Jackrabbit Slims, which I would say is like the iconic moment in this movie with the dancing and everything. Yeah, uh, most visually iconic, I definitely. Yes. Do you know how long that is? 10 minutes. Close. 15 minutes and 40 seconds. I was not close. You're better than saying five minutes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's the one that, like you said, is the most visually iconic. Right. I mean, there's a bunch of like pieces of dialogue that are regurgitated ad nauseum in real life from this movie. Um, but when you think about this movie and you're just thinking pure visuals in your head, you're likely to think of Uma Thurman in that black wig and John Travolta dancing to Chuck Berry. It's only 15 minutes of the movie. <laughs> but I <laughs> well, forgot that... that she comes back later, too. Yeah. Like, uh, so, presumably, that story happens before Butch's story. Because, you know, uh, John Travolta runs into her right. in Butch's locker room, and they have a moment yeah. <laughs> of, like, we have a secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, And also John Travolta gets killed by Bruce Willis. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also took note of the long takes. Again, Quentin Tarantino did not invent this, but it's one of his staples. Yeah, he uses it in a very uh, distinctive way. You kill Bill when she goes to the restaurant that I'm forgetting the name where she fights the crazy 88s. Uh, oh. That's that's like that one giant long take. Yeah. Um, but in Pulp Fiction, the longest take is 58 seconds. That's where long. It's Vincent and Mia going, getting to their table. Yeah. Um, do you know how long the longest take in Bad Times at the El Royale was? Uh, okay, so... The so longest the, take is 14 seconds. <laughs> That's no. way, too much, way too much. No. Okay, so 58 seconds for Vincent and Mia in Jack yeah. Rabbit's Limbs. Yeah. Longest take in El, Bad Times at the El Royale was Laramie in the secret hallway, so John Hamm. Mm-hmm. In the secret hallway, five minutes and 18 seconds. Oh, I didn't even think of that scene. <laughs> yep. And it's done masterfully, <laughs> if I do say so myself. It doesn't feel long, I mean. No, it doesn't feel long. Um, a lot of that, too, is because the real visual focus is different rooms, though. So even though yes. it's one take, it feels like you're moving through, when you feel like you're moving through space, which is why long takes are best used when you're following a, ca- a character as they're moving. Um, it really helps break up the scene for you in your head so you don't get bored with it as an audience member. And, it, and you're learning about yeah. the hotel at that time as yeah. Laramie's learning and it's, uh, I love this movie. I could spend 14 hours just talking about Bad Times at the El Royale. Um, I won't do that to you, dear listener. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And it's not even that you're getting answers from them. You're actually raising more questions about each character. You're, you're, yeah, you're getting questions and you're also learning, but you're also getting a little more information about like... Well, their true nature, yeah. But about the hotel itself. Yeah. Where it, okay, there's a secret hallway. What? Because you follow you follow John Hamm's character. Yeah. And he pulls all the bugs out of his room, right? Yeah. He pulls his bugs, and then the hotels the hotels bugs. Is that what we were set to assume that the hotel bugs their own rooms? Oh, I thought it was the FBI had to bug the hotel for some other FBI case. Bugged- that's it. He's pulling the FBI bugs out, you notice, yeah. when he's on the phone. But I think the hotel itself bugged its own rooms. Okay. You know, when he's putting out, yeah. like, the, the black bugs and the white bugs and stuff. Oh, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. You're right. And then he measures it, and then finally it comes to, like, this conclusion that he realizes there's this <laughs> whole secret passageway, <laughs> which... Which, when I first saw that in theaters, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I, I made a note that both of these films have a sympathetic character. Yes. Um, although, I tried my hardest to figure out which one was in Pulp Fiction. Because, <laughs> like you said, they're all not good characters. Right. Not <laughs> <laughs> good guys. Right. The, the, the best people are still dirtbags. 
So I uh, I stretched it out to Fabian. <laughs> okay, yeah. Although no, she she's... she annoyed the fuck out of me. Oh, I like her. I do, and that actress did a wonderful job. But god damn, you were just annoying. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's when Bruce Willis is just like, we gotta go, and then she starts crying, and it's like, girl, come on, he, hear the tone <laughs> in his voice. Yes, he's yelling at you, but he's like, come on, we gotta go, gotta go. I mean, I I just find that relatable because when I'm overwhelmed with any emotion, my instinct is cry. No, that's true. (laughs) Don't move, just cry. But then, in (laughs) bad times, you have Miles. Yes. Oh, Miles, I'm not gonna spoil it. I won't, we won't spoil too much on this. No, this is a spoilerific podcast. You can spoil it. (laughs) <laughs> fine so or you can allude to it you don't have to spoil if you don't want to so like miles's whole arc though is that he's trying to confess his sins to uh father flynn who's not yeah. a real priest yeah because he murdered people in vietnam and he wants to like repent yeah it wasn't he yeah he was also like the only survivor in like some battle or something some battle and then he's yeah. worked at the hotel for Five years? Yeah. Six years? Four, four years? A few years, at least. <laughs> In his monologue, he's seen things. Yeah. He, that he lists to uh, Dakota Johnson, which, by the way, welcome back to the podcast to get Dakota Johnson. <laughs> I'm so excited we have her back in a good movie this time. Yay, you like this movie. Yay. I do like it. And Dakota Johnson gets to show us what acting is. Yeah. Oh, Yay. Oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, I know it's easier for her because she's like third generation Hollywood or something, but I'm so happy that she got so many good things immediately after Fifty Shades because that could have easily tanked her career for a few years. Is there any other returners? I can't think of anyone else that... From this episode, no. We did forget last week we didn't point out that Wallace Shawn is a, is a returner. Oh my god, I forgot about Wallace Shawn I love him. <laughs> we gladly welcome any other returners from the winter team <laughs> yeah. that we can't think of right now. Yeah. Like I said, I had difficulties finding comparisons. Did you have any uh, an easier time? Um, I mean, a lot of it is just sort of in the thesis and one of the major themes, which is that it's they're they both uh, really revel in sort of the minutia of a life of crime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whereas a lot of movies like to just cut to the action, and this is like no, it's like annoying to have to like drag a body out of a car or like you know you have to clean out your car if you shoot somebody in it, and like like they both take a lot of time with that. Um, this is not unique to either of these filmmakers at all, but Tarantino loves having uh, character development scenes set over a table full of food. Um, by the way, Pulp Fiction, yes. fantastic movie for breakfast lovers. There's so much breakfast oh, food. yeah, <laughs> with the pancakes. Yeah. Um, and the Pop-Tart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're at the diner. Diners are great for breakfast food. Oh, Diners. <laughs> Let's go to a diner, Shady. How about we oh go? Yeah, please. Can Let's we... finish. Okay, we'll wrap this up and we'll go to a diner. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then in Bad Times at the El Royale, there's lots of characters speaking to each other over drinks. Flynn and Darlene have a pie. 
Yeah, uh, they do. Um, and pie is mentioned in Pulp Fiction, so there you go. Very loose mm. <laughs> uh, connection. But yeah, and then there's uh, with uh, Sullivan or Laramie or whatever his name is, John Hamm. John uh, <laughs> And the coffee with Cynthia Erivo. But like, again, that's kind of, that's, I'm throwing that out there. That's something a lot of filmmakers like to do. Is that happening. because when you're eating or sharing some sort of food with somebody that breaks the tension a little bit? Like that's, I think a little, that's, that's like an icebreaker? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think it's it gives the actors something to do with their hands. That too. Um, and but I in think terms it's, of just it's characters in this world. Where I mean, I think it's just you know you're kind of distracted with something to do with your body, so your your mind is fully engaged with the people you're speaking to. Um, I think just real life people do a lot of bonding over food or drinks, just because what else are you doing? The other Quentin Tarantino food scene that comes to mind is not uh, Reservoir Dogs, as people would think, but it's <laughs> um, Death Proof, which is also oh. a long take. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking um, Inglorious Bastards. We get a few of those. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Inglorious <laughs> Bastards is um, one of my favorite Tarantino movies uh, because I think it really solidifies that he's gotten good at this one specific thing. And it's one of the first things I learned when I took a screenwriting class is that a soft rule you should follow as a new screenwriter is do not make a scene last for more than three minutes because your audience will likely lose interest. And just even changing the scenery helps re-energize their brain while they're watching a movie. Um, but you can get away with that rule if you're really, really, really good at building tension. And Tarantino has got, by the time he made Inglorious Bastards, had gotten so good with that that there are like multiple scenes that run close to or even over 10 minutes with just people talking, mostly Christoph Waltz, just talking for close to 10 minutes. And it's amazing. Like, no. About that scene where he joins them for pie. There's a scene with the pie, but then there's also the scene, the prologue for Shoshana's story, where. Um, he's at the farmer's house who's hiding that family. Oh, yeah. And there's, for, I, I have never clocked it, but it's got to be close to 10 minutes um, where they're just sitting at the table before the guns come out and the action actually starts. But the dialogue is so good. Christoph Waltz is so good. But also the tension is so high because you as an audience know that there's a family under the boards and that that's what the Nazis are there to look for. So then would you say that the long take in Bad Times follows that tension rule then? Um, I'm, I, I, I said that question weird. And I'm yeah, there, no, no, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, yes, to some degree, but it's also mo more expository than tense. But it, like I said, it lasts five minutes long. Right. That right. one that one shot right because there's more to that scene right right yeah yeah no there is um i just mean that i don't think the tension is what makes that scene good i think it's the fact that you're learning so much new informa information and you're learning it visually which is ultimately more interesting than having somebody just tell you something show That's don't true. tell <laughs> <laughs> um but I don't think it really gets tense until you see Dakota Johnson drag a girl out of her car and into her hotel room. 
Yeah, because, you know, we kind of get the sense that Father Flynn's not right. Yeah. Laramie, we know, is not is not who he says he is. Right. Um, and on top of that, it's just you're in this secret two-way mirror inside this hotel. And that in itself is intriguing. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have another, any other, anything you want to mention? Um, again, this isn't, I mean, this sort of happens on a smaller scale at various points in Pulp Fiction, but this is something that reminded me of other Tarantino movies like Hatefully, like Inglorious Bastards. But I do like that, or I do think that uh, there's a similarity with those movies and Bad Times in how they start off following different plot threads and then partway through the movie. Yeah, they partway through the movie, you don't even care about those plot lines anymore because a bigger massive threat has just appeared or something has happened that like completely changes the outcome of all of those events or something like that. And I think that happens in Inglorious Bastards where you have two dueling uh, plots to kill Hitler that suddenly meet at the same movie theater. Um, I think that happens with Hatefully. I mean, the whole movie <laughs> is that. We're trying <laughs> I, to think of other ones that do that. I mean, Pulp Fiction kind of does that in smaller ways where, like, Jules just happens to be in the same diner that Honey Bunny and Pumpkin decide to rob. Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. (laughs) I love them. Wait, can I call you Pumpkin and you call me Honey Bunny? Okay, Honey Bunny. Thanks. (laughs) Um, And Pulp Fiction, it's my running theme. Mm Mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction have characters that are not named. Um, I mean, Honey Bunny and Pumpkin do have real names. They do. But but I I like Honey Bunny and Pumpkin better anyway. We have... I wrote names down. Butch's mom doesn't have a name. um, But where was the one? Fourth Man. That's it. Mm. (laughs) He's just Fourth Man. And the Gimp. But (laughs) do you really want to name the Gimp? I don't think we want to name the Gimp. No. Again, those are characters that if you did give them a name, I wouldn't know what that name is. I would simply call them the Gimp and Butch's mother and that guy, Right. I guess, fourth man. Whereas you look at the cast list for uh, Bad Times and every single person has a name. John is so happy. (laughs) Even the four followers that go with Billy Lee to the, the El Royale have a name. Yeah. I mean, you hear one of them named, but they all have, it's funny, they all have, even Millie, the girl that Rose fights in that one scene, uh-huh. you know, where uh, Billy is talking about good and evil and all that. Yeah. Um, they all are, have a first, last name, and a nickname. Millie's her nickname. Her real name is Sylviana Melvin. Ah. <laughs> Okay. You're welcome. Girl, you'll be a woman soon. Can I talk about some other Tarantino movies real quick? Sure. Okay. Um, so another movie that I wanted to mention because similar setting, um, but it's only partially a Tarantino movie is Four Rooms. Mm, yes. Which is an anthology uh, featuring four vignettes by four different directors. Honeymoon Suite, The Missing Ingredient, uh, which is the first of the four rooms, was written and directed by Allison Anders. 
Room 404, The Wrong Man, was written and directed by Alexander Rockwell. Room 309, The Misbehavers, was written and directed by Robert Rodriguez. And Penthouse, The Man from Hollywood, was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, but that's a movie, if you've never seen it, it uh, takes place at a single hotel. Uh, there's one main character that you follow through all four stories, and it's the bellhop, played by Tim Roth, from Ooh. Pulp Fiction. Basically, each separate section is him going to a different room and getting involved with whatever those people are up to, and it's invariably something weird. It's so <laughs> fucking weird, and it's yeah. so beautiful. <laughs> it's a fun movie, and it all takes place on the same night at the same hotel, and you're following a bellhop. Huh, that sounds very familiar, Shady. It Why sure does. Why does that sound familiar? Because it's El Royale. <laughs> Get away. Uh, <laughs> and then I also wanted to mention, you know, of course, Inglorious Bastards ends with, uh, the climax ends with the movie theater being set ablaze um, and everyone inside dying. And uh, Django Unchained ends with him murdering everybody at the plantation and and so there are other Tarantino movies that destroy a place and or most of the cast by the end of the movie. Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Bill, Dogs. Bill saga. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then El Royale ends with only two of the characters still alive and the El Royale itself burned down. Which... Or at least two of the characters who were at the El Royale, I should say, are left alive. Part of me wants them to do another Bad Times, but have it set earlier. Mm. Could that happen? Could we make that happen? Listen, Drew Goddard. Listen, Drew Goddard. Get, I mean... Text him. Te- tweet him. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, he always responds. Hey, Drew, what's up? <laughs> hey, girl. We're just talking about <laughs> you and your movie. Yeah, just, uh, just wanted some tea. Fill um, <laughs> it. Uh, is there any other, anything else? I mean, like I said, really the only difference is that they are actually two, the stories themselves are completely separate. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's, there are a lot of stylistic flourishes that are similar. They're, you know, Bad Times takes place in, a, it's a period piece. So there's lots of obvious references to the 60s and 70s just because that's the world they're living in. But Tarantino references pop culture from the same era all the time, and especially in Pulp Fiction. Um, I do think it's interesting that Bad Times at El Royale came out before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We'll because <laughs> I had Bad Times for Special Features, and we'll, I want to talk about that. Okay, well, I was just going to say, because obviously that one actually deals with the Manson family. and Right. Billy Lee is pretty clearly uh, based off of Charles Manson and Rosie based off of Squiggy and all them. Squeaky. <laughs> Squee- Squeaky was in Vernon yeah. Shirley. <laughs> Whatever. Special features. Shady and I each take a movie uh and look up some trivia fun facts to nerd out with each other one up each other maybe surprise each other and hopefully surprise you Uh, yeah i'm gonna be honest i don't think i can surprise you on this one (laughs) well 
Shady, you had Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Which you said off camera. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ew. This is an audio podcast, but I'm still keeping it with movie terms. Uh, you said off camera that you looked up Quentin Tarantino, the man himself. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was more uh, g- general Tarantino facts than Pulp Fiction facts. I have some great, of those, too. Which is great, because we talked about him. So yeah. tell us what you found. Okay, so, I mean, I guess... Everybody knows this if you know Tarantino, but he never went to film school. He learned how to be a director from his job at a video store, watching a bunch of movies all the time. Which he then references. Yes, over and over and over again. Um, And that's why he does it so deliberately. I mean, he does have like a really great, great way of organizing it all into something that adds up into a different result than whatever he's referencing. Like, he's a great remix artist. But uh, obviously, along the way, he learned things. Right. He, he, he refined his skills and, you know, learned how to work with actors in different ways and stuff like that. But his first job in the film industry was actually uh, when he was 16. He lied about his age and became an usher at the Pussycat Theater in Torrance, California, which is a porn theater. so that is officially his first job in the film industry um obviously if you watch a lot of quentin tarantino movies he has a lot of um preferences for things that he puts in his movies everywhere cough feet cough (laughs) but uh he also does a lot of great uses of songs where he picks songs that are particularly dissonant with what's happening on screen Um, or what we know about the characters who are enjoying that song in the movie. But Pulp Fiction uses a lot of surf music. Surf movies? Surf music. Uh, It does not take place at the beach. (laughs) Like, it's kind of weird to think about it, but I was listening to the music and I was like, this actually is, it's become so iconic to this movie that you don't even notice how dissonant it is anymore. But this is the type of music that's supposed to be in like, a Frankie and Annette movie. So according to IMDb, <laughs> the word fuck is used 265 times. God damn, I said <laughs> god damn! <laughs> but that still feels like, that feels low to me. Well, let's see. It's a two hour movie. It's like two and a half hours, almost. It's almost two and a half hours. How many minutes is that? 160 minutes, give or take. We'll say 170 no, wait. 120 would be two hours plus 30. 150. It's 150? Yeah. And you said 270? 265. That's like 1.5 fucks a minute or something like that. That doesn't seem like enough to me. <laughs> it doesn't seem like enough. <laughs> Come on. Quick. <laughs> Quinty baby, you could have added I mean, another three hundred fox. No, seriously, he could have he could have crossed the three hundred line. So this movie, ha, ha, what do you think the budget for this movie was? Nineteen ninety four. Nineteen ninety four. Miramax. Quentin Tarantino is a known name director. He's well, got one. He's got he's got a couple of hits as a writer, and he's got one as a director. Um. I want to say it's probably like $10 million. I have the number as $8 million. 
Um, the initial budget was reportedly even lower, but Bruce Willis was added to the cast. And at the time, he was a huge star, huge box office draw. So he got, he sort of lifted the balance. But I also heard that he took a pay cut to do this movie. According to IMDb, $5 million of that $8 million went to the actors' and actresses' salaries. And then guess how much it grossed at the box office? I want to say probably around $100 million. $200 million. Oh, no! <laughs> 1994. That's a crazy... That's a lot. That's a crazy, crazy profit. <laughs> that's, like, that's like Endgame. Yeah. <laughs> I don't... I don't I don't want to I don't want to talk too much about who produced this movie because fuck that guy I hope he dies. Um but he's really good at making a movie for a very small amount of money and having it make a huge amount of money and or win a shit ton of Oscars. Um so here is one that is pulp fiction but also Quentin Tarantino. Okay. The car that Jules drives was Tarantino's own personal car. The one that where they shot Marvin? Yeah. I shot Marvin to the face. <laughs> um, that car got stolen. <gasps> <laughs> and then, so for years and years, QT was just like, all right, guess my car is gone. And then years later, um, some cops in LA busted some kids stripping a, a car. And then they saw that there were customizations made to that car and they figured out it was Quentin Tarantino's old car. And the new current owner had bought it having no clue that it was stolen. So here's something fun that I noticed it and then I went to IMDb to verify this. But did you notice that Marcella and Mia, Marcella, Marcellus and Mia never speak to each other in this movie? They don't. They share scenes together. They are at the poolside together. And in in the uh, the locker room together. Yeah, but like those are silent scenes. Well, the poolside scene is silent, and the locker room there's other things going on. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, they never actually speak to each other, um, which I noticed that. But it's also one of those things that like it's almost subliminal. Like you notice it, but you don't really think about it. Um, but, like, I really honed in on that for some reason this time around. And I was like, oh, they never talk to each other. And then, finally, I wanted to talk about... I found a list, a fan-made list, of different influences on this movie in particular. Uh-huh. The list I found admitted at the beginning that it was an incomplete list because they just stopped finding things, like being able to even find things. The list that they had is over 60 films, TV shows, and other works. Um, and it's it goes from things that are directly lifted, uh, like pieces of dialogue, or, you know, there's this scene, a, a portion of the diner scene is shot, shot for shot identical to an opening scene in the movie Bonnie and Clyde. If you know the movie, you'll pick up on it, but it's from all different sources. They've got Hong Kong movies, Kung Fu movies. Um, they've got a whole bunch of French new wave films. There's a lot of Jean-Luc Godard and uh, Truffaut in there. There's even, let me find this guy's name. I need to make sure I say it correctly. Is that a foreign <laughs> name? Because no, that's no, no. be interesting. No, I want to make sure that I get his name correct. Uh, his name is 
Cassius Marcellus Coolidge. Okay. So Butch Coolidge is Bruce Willis's character, and then Marcellus Wallace. So they're named after this artist. He's the guy who painted the dogs playing poker. Ha ha. Okay. I have bad times at the El Royale. Speaking of Quentin Tarantino, (laughs) (laughs) one more thing. His latest movie is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Yep. Which came out a year after Bad Times. But both soundtracks share two songs. They share Hush by Deep Purple. And 12.30, Young Girls Are Coming to the Canyon by the Mamas and the Papas. Mm. Now, you mentioned already that Billy Lee is based off of Charles Manson and Rosie's murders are parallel to the Tate murders. Yeah. Fine. 12.30, Young Girls Are Coming to the Canyon was also apparently playing when the bodies of Sharon Tate and her friends were found. And that is mm. used as Billy Lee's introduction in El Royale, which kind of solidifies. He is Charles Manson, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the El Royale Hotel is based off the Cal Neva Resort, mm-hmm. which I looked up the history of that. It was built in 1926, and it straddles between Nevada and California by Lake Tahoe. It burned down in 1937, and was Mm. rebuilt 30 days later. In 1960, it was purchased by Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sam Giancana, who is a Chicago mobster. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Uh, It changed hands multiple times over the decades. Uh, It was closed for renovations in 2013 and has not reopened. However, the El Royale set piece... Uh, was built from scratch on a soundstage and designed to allow enough light that they didn't have traditional set lighting for movies. Mm. So it's all practicals, except for obviously the outdoor scenes. But uh, That's one thing we didn't get to touch on in the episode proper, but the set design in both of these movies is just chef's kiss. God. Yes. So I genuinely want to go to these sets untouched and just like look around for a full afternoon. So much detail. So beautiful. Uh, The El Royale Hotel is both a motel and a hotel. Hotel rooms are defined that they are accessible through an internal hallway. Motel rooms are accessible from an outside hallway. From (laughs) from the outside, I should say. (laughs) Outside hallway. Whatever. (laughs) I never realized that that is the difference between a hotel and a motel. Yep. But also, wow, El Royale does have both of those things. But it's called the El Royale Hotel, but really it's a motel until yeah. you find the secret hallway. Ooh, is that is that a hint that Drew Goddard dropped in there to the audience that we were supposed to pick up on, but we're too stupid? My mind is blown. <laughs> So I'm going to call IMDb's bluff on when this movie takes place. Yeah, me too. They said early 1970s. Yeah, no. Um, It is presumably January 27th, 1969, Mm. based on Nixon's press conference on the TV. Yeah, Um, I was going to say that is... That's my only reference for when this takes place, but I was like, that's early in Nixon's presidency. And there is something that we forgot to talk about. Both movies have a mysterious prop. 
Oh, yeah. So, obviously, suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, but in which this I, one, I dropped this from trivia because this is not going to blow your mind. You already know this, but Quentin Tarantino has gone on record saying that whatever you want to be in the suitcase is what's in his suitcase. Well, unlike... Briefcase, whatever. Unlike what Quentin Tarantino said, uh, somebody figured out who's on the roll of film. Mm. And it's most likely Robert Kennedy. He was assassinated in 1968, which explains Rose's line, he's dead. Yeah. And it cannot be JFK nor Martin Luther King Jr. because... JFK died in 63 and MLK his stuff like came up later I think like his affairs or his affairs were publicized before he was assassinated well, yeah he was uh the FBI was investigating him for dirt for much of his career um before his assassination and so, they were constantly trying to expose him for affairs so it's most likely Robert Kennedy. Congratulations, Robert Kennedy. Good for you. And then I found alternative casting. These are people that were either originally attached or originally considered, mm-hmm. which I hope blows your mind away. You have Tom Holland as Miles, Russell Crowe as Laramie, the John Ham part. Okay. Uh, Matthew McConaughey as Billy Lee. Damn, that would have been good. <laughs> and get this, Beyonce as Darlene. Oh, oh, Wait. I... Uh, You're torn, right? Although... Know, Cynthia Erivo is so good. So now, let, let's break it down for a second. <laughs> we're going to talk it... We're, we're going to turn it into a music podcast for a hot second. <laughs> yeah. Cynthia Erivo's voice, in my opinion sounds more of the time than Beyonce's voice. Beyonce's voice was great for Cadillac Records. I mean, I haven't seen it, but... (laughs) Yeah, she's good in that movie. She's she's good for... Acting role. She's good for those type of songs. Yeah. The Crystals. Yeah. You know, the song, like the doo-wop, the Motown songs that, that... um, Darlene sings. I don't think she'll have the same timbre in her voice. Yeah. It, it, it's not that she wouldn't sound great. She obviously would, but it wouldn't sound like she is one of those voices that would have that job at that time period. Like, it just doesn't blend into what it's supposed to sound like. Plus, no offense to Cynthia Revo, but Beyonce does not look like a bad person. <laughs> yeah. I won't buy I mean, Beyonce as a backup singer. That's the plot of me- Dream Girls. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, her life. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is why they couldn't cast her in Josie and the Pussycats either, because she would have been Valerie and Valerie's oh. backup. Oh my god, full circle! Wow. <laughs> Finally! <laughs> we answer why they didn't hire her. Not because she's shy in the audition, but because. She is Beyonce. Special <laughs> <laughs> features. Do you want to get into final thoughts? Sure, let's, let's get into do final it. thoughts. So we asked the same five questions. I think I know the answers to all these already, but uh-huh. let's do it. Other movies like this. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not counting Tarantino's entire oeuvre because we've been talking about it the whole time, right? 
But would you throw in, obviously, much more highly stylized, but would you throw in, like, the Sin City movies? Yeah. They have the same storytelling devices. Yeah. It's separate stories that sort of intersect or share some common element. I feel like there's a few horror movies that I throw in, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. I mean, I think you can point to a lot of anthologies, uh, regardless of genre, and point out certain things that are similar between all of them. If you want to go into TV, we can talk (laughs) about Westworld and, like, The Haunting of Hill House as well, where... American Horror Story. An American Horror (laughs) Story, where they start wherever they want and end wherever they want. Yeah. Uh... Did we like these movies? Yes, yes, obviously. Would we watch them again? Fuck yeah. 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 Why yeah. wouldn't... I would never not watch Pulp Fiction. I'm sorry. Bad times, though? I would watch it again. Good. Not as much. It's a similar Princess Bride versus Stardust type thing. As long as you say yes to this, we can still do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would we recommend them? Yeah, yes. if you have not seen Bad Times yet, sorry we spoiled it, but you know, you know what you're getting with us. There's also a good chance you haven't seen it because this movie did poorly at the box office. I gave it money. <laughs> and then I bought it on Prime. So I don't I'm think happy. I actually gave it money. I think I used Movie Pass on this. Did I still have Movie Pass at that point? Whatever, go ahead. <laughs> uh, and we've answered this question already. Are they actually the same? They have stylistic similarities. I always, um, even, I always even refer that, to you, Shady, on this question. <laughs> um, I mean, they definitely share a lot of elements, and there's definitely uh, a, they're made in the same spirit, um, and that does take you very far, especially stuff like this, which places so much value on style as well as story. Having those shared elements does uh, go a long way. Um, but no, because ultimately one of them is much more vignette style and the other one is... Rewind. Yeah, every, every it's, it's, like I said earlier, there's a lot of Rashomon in this movie, in addition to Tarantino. I want to add a sixth question. I just thought okay. of it. Yeah. Which soundtrack do you prefer? <gasps> ooh, 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 they're both good. Right. I'm gonna say Pulp Fiction only because it takes you to different genres and different periods. I like you like Bad Times. <laughs> <laughs> I like them both. And I've actually bought Bad Times on iTunes and I listen to it on occasion. <laughs> I mean, I just love surf music. There you go. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> um, if you like surf music... And want to let us know. Yeah. You can... Or just talk about the Black Eyed Peas, I guess. Because they sampled the Pulp Fiction theme. Uh, <laughs> that was a stretch, Shady. They I was did, like, though. Where, where are we going here? That song used going? to be a real song. And then it was the Pulp Fiction song. And then it was, oh, Black Eyed Peas did this. <laughs> yeah, but we can forget about Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> and if you yeah. want to forget about Black Eyed Peas with me, you can tweet me at MoviesJohn on Twitter. Uh, that is John with no H. 
I am at Cookie O Shady. Cookie, like the thing you eat. O, like just the letter. And then Shady, like that's Shady. If you want to reach out to us and make a case as to why these movies are actually the same, yeah. we welcome it. Or if we, if we missed out on another connection between them, let us know. Or another movie. Yeah. Um, you can email us. We're at moviedejavupod at gmail.com. That is M-O-V-I-E-D-E-J-A-V-U-P-O-D at gmail.com. Maybe I'll make a song out of it. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be like Cars for Kids. (laughs) Um, If you want to find what I post on on Instagram (laughs) and like it, please do. We're at Movie Deja Vu Pod on Instagram. Yeah. John uh, does that one because it actually has to look good. I do the one that we just write stupid shit and post it. Yeah, so. Shady's in charge of our Twitter because <laughs> she's more Twitter friendly. <laughs> if you want to at us on Twitter um, or follow us, that would be dope. Uh, we are at Movie Deja Vu. Hold on. There's no pod there. Because why? Continuity. And then we're on Facebook at Movie Deja Vu Pod as well. Just, you know, see us rambling and ranting and sharing whatever. Uh, You can also message us on any of the socials. That's what kids say, right? Socials? I don't know. The social medias. spoken to a child in 18 years. Oh, shit, Shady. Uh, <laughs> you can reach out to us on any of our social media platforms if you have a suggestion for a future episode that you want us to uh, uh, compare a couple movies or whatever. And Shady, what are we doing next week? Uh, oh, what, <laughs> what, what are we are doing? What are we doing next week? I know what we're doing next week. Next week, we're going to have uh, a pretty... I'm 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 excited for this pretty special episode because it might be our first true two-parter. Ooh. Ooh. We are going to be doing the Brady Bunch movie and 21 Jump Street. And then what's the second part and of the then two-parter? We will follow that up with a very Brady sequel and 22 Jump Street. Hooray! Yay. <laughs> Yeah, guys, we're getting into the spiritualness of similar similar movies. Yeah, that's one where we're going to end up talking about television more than movies. And it's okay, because it's our podcast. Yeah, we do what we want. You can't um, tell us. Honey Bunny. Yes, Pumpkin. <laughs> this is great. Let's do this again next week, okay? Let's do it. Okay. Bye. Bye. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men.